0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to the Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council, the TTC meeting, which is to convene for the third time in December. We'll also talk about sanctions on Nicaragua, and we'll talk about bilateral relations with China, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we're back in the saddle and there is finally confirmation that the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council, also known as TTC, will convene for the third time in December and they're going to meet in D.C. It's been a while since we've last discussed the TTC and all of its machinations. Can you guys remind us what it actually is and what it aims to achieve?
1: Well, it's got 10 working groups it has achieved so far one significant and conspicuous success which is to produce allied unity on sanctions on russia and export controls on russia which was really i think an extraordinary multilateral accomplishment by the biden administration uh, demonstrating good leadership the purpose of it was to try to reset us eu relations and start them down a more constructive path the previous path having been First, 40 years of unsatisfactory negotiations over a whole host of issues where we differ, everything from chickens, which we've talked about, to a variety of health and safety regulations, a lot of agriculture issues where we won't let their stuff in and they won't let our stuff in. And then the Trump administration, where Trump spent four years threatening to pull out of NATO and berating the various European countries for various things. So there was a real desire on both sides to try to rebuild the relationship because there's so many issues, particularly the large geopolitical issues, where we're together and we ought to be able to resolve these problems. The premise of the TTC, though, was we're going to take all those economic and and regulatory standards issues that have divided us for 40 years, and we're going to put them over here aside. That's not what the TTC is about. The TTC is supposed to address new issues, new problems, forthcoming issues, Basically, we're trade negotiators. Refer to iron rice bowls, which are elements of protection that have been in an economy for a very long time and are very hard to get rid of because you've got all these people that have a stake in them. They put all the iron rice bowls aside, and so let's focus on SMEs. Let's focus on you know inclusion and gender. Let's focus on regulatory issues in new sectors, uh, in digital areas, and things like that. And these other issues, we're going to deal with. Separately, so the steel aluminum tariffs are being dealt with in a separate channel. Even some of the digital regulation issues, the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, European acts, are being dealt with somewhere else. GDPR, the privacy issue that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, that was separate. But we're trying to look ahead at other areas of where we can cooperate on standards and uh, you know d- development of common approaches two common problems, uh, sustainability. And the big one, as I said, was was export controls, which was the most conspicuous area of success. The hunt right now for December 5th is for deliverables. This is the third meeting. And with the single exception of export controls, there haven't been any deliverables. So now they're looking at the other working groups.
2: So, so Scott, are there going to be deliverables of this one? Remains to be seen. Look, Bill described a two-step process. There's a process of setting aside. There's a process of working together. I agree with Bill. The, The setting aside part was smart because... We've been fighting about a lot of things on a very sort of mercantilist level for many years. And while it, it intensified during the Trump administration, I recall meeting with our Geneva ambassadors for the last four administration, each of whom were individually persuaded that the whole European operation in Geneva was an anti-US project. I mean, they couldn't work together on anything. So I think setting those, those old sticky issues aside was a wise move. The real question is, what can we work together on? Now, my view is Europe. They like the meetings, but they also like the advantages of being the regulatory first mover. And we have a more bottom-up style of standard setting and regulation and than Europe does. And they tend to want to go first and want to establish all the standards. And I don't know how that's going to work out here because when you work together, you've got to work together. So remains to be seen.
1: I can use a British, a Britishism here if that's the right word. A Britishism. A Britishism. The, the Americans threw a spanner in the works, if you will, in our Inflation Reduction Act by enacting this electric vehicle tax credit with conditions that are violative of the WTO that have domestic content requirements and a North American assembly requirement. And uh, Europeans are very upset about this and uh, are
0: upset. Well, I could, I could give an Americanism response to the Europeans. Which is? Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have
2: all these issues that we had to set aside, Andrew. <laughs> That's, those are exactly the, the kinds of words that got said right before we had a problem we couldn't solve.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's, I guess it's a good thing I'm not negotiating. Well, the, the Europeans are pointing
1: out that it's this is not a blow for greater cooperation and they're starting, you know, the news in the last couple of days has been Macron, who would you is exactly who you would expect, saying we need to have a bi European policy to offset the Americans by American policy, which I think for him probably means a bi French policy, but that hasn't been fully revealed yet. But, you know, in the interest of cooperation, what they've decided to do is they Push that to a separate track. So they've set up a little committee chaired by the Deputy National Security Advisor here. And, and I think it's President von der Leyen's Chief of Staff to try to work out the Inflation Reduction Act problem. So that won't, in theory, won't get in the way of the TTC, but it's going to get in the way because it's one more thing that, you know, added on to this. boatload of old issues where we disagree and i think from the european perspective here it is the americans you know sticking it to us once again and uh, their inclination is going to be uh, how do we get even i mean that's the inclination at the government level now if you talk to the car companies who are the actual ones that are affected by this i think their inclination is uh, how do we figure out a way to make this work Can we adjust our supply chains to meet the conditions of this? I mean, they'll complain all the while about it because for them, it's an unfair restriction. But business people are pragmatists. And at the same time they're complaining, they're figuring out a way around it. And in a way, they're all in the same boat, including the American companies, because the standard that Congress enacted in some respects cannot be met by anybody in the short term. So they're all in an equally bad
0: spot. So it's not fair for us to go tell them to go jump in a lake.
2: Well, this is one where if you want technology and trade cooperation, I think it would be wise to involve the industry. Because I think Bill's point is right. You have a set of of subsidies that no one can qualify for at the moment. And that's not what the governments of either economy wanted. And it certainly is unsatisfactory from the manufacturer standpoint. But there's lots of ways they can cooperate on this. And so everybody finds at least something of a win in it.
0: So there's something in it for everybody. Well, we hope. I think they're going to
1: great lengths not to have a breakdown. The question will be if they can come up with other concrete deliverables beyond export controls. Although there's more to be done in the export control area, I think, largely because of the war.
0: You know, in The Godfather, they would just say, you know, you have to let them wet their beak. Yep. Got gotcha, to get the beak wet one, uh, once in a while. But he's <laughs> got to get their
2: share of the toll.
0: Is that
1: like swimming with the
2: fishes? That's a, oh no, 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 no
0: swimming no. with the fishes is is a very bad alternative for most people to wetting one's beak. Wetting one's beak means you're you know you're you're getting a piece of the pie. Swimming with the fishes means you no longer exist.
1: Is there something significant to all these water analogies?
0: <laughs> I don't, I don't do know. That. It's interesting. I never thought of it that way. All right. So we'll have to watch that. But let's turn now to a topic that we discussed over the summer, which is the Biden administration's trade policy and approach to Nicaragua. Not been big headlines about this, but what recent changes have occurred?
2: Well, there are additional efforts through executive orders to increase the level of sanctions on Nicaraguan exports, uh, in particular uh, Nicaraguan gold. But they're looking at a variety of products. There's ongoing human rights concerns with the ortega administration that's not new daniel ortega is a a figure who's who's been in nicaraguan politics for certainly longer than than there's been a trade guys but uh the initial presidency goes back to the 70s Yep. so there's been u.s nicaragua tensions for a long period of time particularly when daniel ortega is is in the leadership roles Uh, that's certainly the case now the the human rights concerns are as best i can tell valid Unfortunately, the tools we use have a poor record of actually delivering change in the behavior of the targeted country. And when you step back from it, Nicaragua was a very small country with six and a half million people, but half of those six and a half million people live below the World Bank poverty line. It's one of the poorest countries in the world, certainly in the hemisphere. So other than making poor people poorer. What do these sanctions actually accomplish? And I think that's the that's the question. And given the size and and sort of tiny relationship the United States has with Nicaragua in trade, investment, and commerce in general, I mean it's just a small country. We we're not we shouldn't expect to have big trade relations with them. But they're highly dependent on us, correct? For exports, they are, but particularly their agricultural exports, which are very important, and mining exports like gold. So, this is uh, this is one where there is rationale for this, but first, is this a top priority? I don't know. For someone, it must be. But more importantly for me is, how does this change anybody's behavior? Why do we expect this to work? Certainly similar sanctions on Cuba for since the John Kennedy administration have only created a rationale for Cuban leaders to blame Americans for Cuban poverty and so I think what we're doing is giving Ortega a reason to tell his people that they're poor. It's the Americans fault, but what else it accomplishes, I'm not sure.
1: Bill, how do you see it? It's a reflection, I think, of the priority that this administration puts on human rights. It's not new. I mean, every administration supports human rights and every administration attacks uh, countries that violate them and treat their people or, or other people poorly. There's growing evidence uh, in a number of cases, the, the Uyghur uh, issue is another example, where this administration takes it more seriously than previous administrations and is making it an element of its policy and is prepared to take these kinds of steps regardless of the consequences that Scott described, acknowledging the consequences that Scott described, but they clearly believe they need to take a stand. They need to say, this is unacceptable behavior. The United States is not going to condone it, and we're going to do what we can to change it, notwithstanding the fact that the victims of what we do will, by and large, be poor people and, and not the, the elite that runs the country. You're beginning to see that in, in other areas as well. Like I said, the Uyghurs being a, a good example. Other administrations would have said the same things rhetorically, but they would not have done so much. I was struck when the administration rolled out its export control rules that we've been talking about. A lot of uh, the statements phrase them in terms of national security, but the Assistant Secretary of of Commerce, Taya Kendler, phrased it from a human rights perspective because the chips that are being controlled, which are AI chips, among other things, are used by the Chinese to develop their facial recognition technologies which they use widely in the country for surveillance of all their citizens, but particularly the Uyghurs. And, you know, one of the articulated purposes of the control was to deny the Chinese the capability of doing that on human rights grounds. The law has always permitted that, but it's not every administration that has been so explicit in their use of, you know, trade policy and, and export controls
2: specifically for that purpose. You know, it reminds me of a situation uh, with intellectual property where I worked for a company that paid a lot of attention to counterfeiting and piracy. And there's an annual report called the, S- the Special 301 Report that focuses on, on counterfeiting and piracy and has remedies that they put in place. I recall one year we had reported major problems on counterfeiting and piracy of our products in Russia. And uh, when the report came out, there were sanctions on Ukraine. And the person I worked for in Cincinnati who oversaw the program, I reported the contents of the USTR's findings, and that this special fear one report had special harsh treatment for Ukraine. His comment was, Oh, so they decided to kick the puppy. For me, when you have human rights problems of the scale that we have with China and elsewhere, sanctioning Nicaragua feels like kicking the puppy and okay. And I, I do understand the rationale, and I by no means defending the conduct of any Nicaraguan official in this circumstance, but it's hard to grasp it. So- yeah,
0: kicking the puppy is sad. Yeah, very sad. PETA will honor you. Right. <laughs> I, yes,
2: I'm also not. All nice. right, so now you're going to get PETA pissed off at us? No, I'm, 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 I'm not for Daniel Ortega, and I'm not for kicking puppies. So. All right.
1: No Let the record show that the trade guys, I agree, the
0: trade guys are firmly against kicking puppies. Firmly, firmly. We love puppies. Speaking of big dogs, let's now turn to the U.S.-China trade relations. We all know now that President Xi who's named himself Leader for Life, is headed to an historic third term. What can we tell so far about how U.S.-China commercial
2: relations might or might not change? Well, this is an area of increasing tension. And I think what is important to recognize is the underlying size of the relationship. Despite the tensions, this is our largest bilateral trade relations. So U.S. and China exchanged on the good side $560 billion a year in bilateral trade there's another $60 billion a year in services trade. So it is it is our largest trading relation. There are many, many things, machines and, and equipment and soybeans and other agricultural products that we export to China. China is also, while it's a, it's a large consumer market these days, it is also the place that you can do assembly at scale most efficiently in the world. So their exports to us are assembled mobile phones and other electronic devices. There's a lot of trade between the two countries, and it's all getting much more difficult to manage, whether through the tariff policies or export controls or industrial policy or restrictions on entities in China. Life is getting harder for a very big relationship.
1: It's noteworthy that Xi Jinping made a conciliatory comment about his willingness to cooperate with the Americans in, in areas where cooperation was possible. It was different in tone from you know, previous statements, perhaps a reflection that the party Congress is now over and he's been reinstalled for five more years so he doesn't have to take quite the tough line. And also perhaps a, a hint that uh, that in fact they will meet the two presidents in in Bali next month when they are both attending the G20. The Chinese up till now have been refusing to both either commit to a meeting or to engage in any planning for the meeting. And perhaps this statement by by Xi is, is a sign that they're coming around and that there will be a meeting. I think if there is, it'll be A short meeting and sort of a pleasant meeting where the best you're going to hope for is agreement to have more meetings, but uh, hopefully uh, an agreement to continue some kind of dialogue. Every administration, really, since at least Reagan, has had a structure for a U.S. China economic dialogue. Every president had their own name for it. You know, you have to make it different, but it was always the same. But there was a JCCT, there was the SED, the the S and ED. Even the Trump administration had a structure. It was part of the phase one agreement. And the idea was there are a lot of little problems that come along that don't rise to the presidential level, but we ought to be able to solve them. You know, it's uh, and oftentimes it's local authorities or provincial authorities in China imposing restrictions or setting up barriers that are not what the national government wants. And it's just a matter of of bringing these to the attention of the other government and trying to get them fixed. And when I was in the government, we had some success with that. On a company-by-company basis, they would come in with complaints, and not all the time, but some of the time, you could get the relevant Chinese minister or vice premier to pay attention and do something about it. That's all kind of gone away. The Trump structure was never operationalized. It's not something that will solve the big problems that divide us, and it's not something that will solve the geopolitical problems that divide us. But we've got a boatload of very specific problem, you know, fruit that can't get into the country because somebody has decided, to, you know, that it needs to be inspected and it's going to take a week to bring the inspector, or factories that get shut down because somebody comes in and decides they're unsafe. There's all these little problems. We could do a lot more than we're doing to to solve. So. It would be nice if they agree to some kind of structure to restart those kinds of conversations and that kind of dialogue, and hopefully down the road, maybe that would lead to something better.
2: Uh, Bill's right. There's always been a way to have a conversation about mutually interesting problems we could solve together. And that was also true back in the Cold War days. We had ongoing dialogues of of various levels and various sorts with the Soviet Union, despite the tensions involved in the relations. So, uh, I think that's probably the the direction to go. I just don't see a sign of going there. Someone observed, as we were were making a lot of moves on embargoing shipments, someone reminded me that uh, Margaret Thatcher gave Ronald Reagan a lecture on contract sanctity. When the United States tried to cancel a grain order for the Soviet Union, and uh, Prime Minister Thatcher pointed out that there was a contract and we needed to honor that contract if we were true to our word. The contract was honored. So, this notion of talking to people despite frustrations or in the case of Russia, despite hostilities is something that has long existed in US relations and probably has a role here.
1: At the the same time, I don't think anybody expects. Any major change in economic policy from the from the Chinese government, you're going to get uh, more of the same. The, the, the question in in the end will be who replaces Liu He, who's going to be retired. This is this is really questions in a way for the future because the the transition this past weekend was in the party. The actual transition of government officials, the various ministers, will be in usually in March. So there's a time to work up to it. We will see, but can't foresee a change of policy. And it'll be it'll be interesting because the policies that that she has been pursuing really are for more state control and more more support for state-owned enterprises. And the private sector in in China is increasingly uh, getting the shorter end of the stick, contrary to what his predecessors were doing, contrary to uh, the I think the recommendations of Chinese economists who know what they need to do to grow which is to open up the economy more than they have. But she has set the course, and I, I don't see it changing. So the big problems we have with them, I think, are going to persist.
0: So you guys are not exactly optimistic about these bilateral trade relations and that they might still improve.
2: Well, look, we care about trade and investment here in this, this big dynamic economy. China has always been a trading nation and continues to be sort of a commercial republic, much like the United States in, in, in many aspects. Bill's right about state control, but, you know, $600 plus billion plus of trade every year in, in goods and services is not nothing. And people, people, that's how people, jobs get created, that's how people earn livings, that's how consumers' lives get better. And that is not something you want to ignore and allow to deteriorate, at least without thought.
1: Deterioration is going to be in supply chain development. And here I think companies, American companies, are going through a process of reassessing the risk of doing business in China. And their dilemma is it's a very attractive market. It's a large market. We've said this before, best customer and biggest threat at the same time. And the companies have to figure out how to deal with that, but it's not just economic policies, you know, the the Chinese have had a history now of increasingly weaponizing trade and causing trade difficulties for individual companies when they disagree with another country politically. Look at Lithuania, look at Australia, they were putting Rio Tinto executives in jail because there was a disagreement over iron ore prices. They stopped buying Norwegian salmon when the Norwegians gave Luchalbo the Nobel Peace Prize in ten years ago. So So if you're an American executive, a CEO, thinking, you know, if I go to China, are they going to let me out? That's an issue that causes people to rethink uh, what they're doing there. And in the end, they'll make decisions that are based on their business model, their economics, and the nature and extent of their investment in China. It's not like... A tsunami of companies leaving it's going to be more sand leaking out of the bag and it's going to be more companies not leaving but developing alternative supply chains somewhere else so that if their china chinese suppliers end up cutting them off or being forced to cut them off by the chinese government they won't be caught short uh, there, will, there will be
2: alternatives and of course china's comparative advantage in assembly of scale is neither permanent nor exclusive That can change over time and those kinds of operations can appear elsewhere and and are appearing elsewhere.
1: Well, and it is. You wouldn't think for a country this large, but their population actually had declined last year, as I recall, for the first time in a very long time. Working age, yes. They're going to end up with worker shortage. It's an aging population. Wages have been going up, which is what happens when you have fewer workers. They're becoming less globally competitive for industries where labor is an important part of the production cost. And their zero COVID policy has cost them an enormous amount of growth because they just shut down plants for periods of time uh, every time time there's a breakout and that has made them in effect you know unreliable suppliers for downstream buyers and some of them are even companies that don't want to go somewhere else uh, are being forced to go somewhere else if their if their supplier shuts down
0: well gentlemen we're starting to get to the bottom of this i think but we're a long way off at the same time
1: the bottom is a long way down
0: (laughs) yeah we'll be talking about this one again oh yeah gentlemen thanks as always great talk thank you